Turn your copy of God's Word to our text today, coming to us from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We will be in verses 18 through 21. So hear now the inerrant and the infallible, the sufficient, the eternal word of the living God. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And you may be seated. The grass withers in the flower phase, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would oversee the time of the preaching of your word, that you would remove the distraction of your servant, the preacher himself, and speak clearly to your people. Lord, we are gathered together as your people and no one else's. And may that ring clearly to us today. Lord, despite our sinfulness, despite our shortcomings, we ask that you would condescend down to us today and have your word pierce our hearts and change us to be more like Christ. That is all we want. That is all we desire before we go home to be with you is to be more like Christ, to have as much of heaven as we can possibly have now. And we ask that you would use these few meager minutes that we have today towards those ends. And we ask that humbly, but expectantly in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in finishing chapter five, Getting up to verse 21, it's the end of a major section before Paul transitions into a discussion about relationships, particularly relationships that have leadership and submission in them. But before he gets to that, he has one wrap-up section in verses 18 through 21. The central figure of that section would be the Holy Spirit himself. Now, we've seen a lot of the Holy Spirit so far in the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2 and 3. We saw the theological understanding, the distinctions of what it is that he does. And so far in chapters 4 and 5, what we've seen is us walking in the Spirit and obedience to the Spirit. And what we've had for the past 122 years, I'm going to tell you why that date's specific. What we've had for the past 122 years, at least in the Western church, Western civilizations, that'd be Europe, Australia, North America, we have had a hijacking of the Holy Spirit. So since 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, there was a man named Charles Parham, and he had a school that he just decided that he was going to start all on his own, and the teacher was going to be the Holy Spirit. And in that school, there was a woman named Agnes Osman. And she's the first recorded person in North America to supposedly have spoken in tongues. Now, it was incoherent, babbling gibberish. Nevertheless, for the past 122 years, there's been an endless barrage of charlatans and hucksters all labeling themselves as agents of the Holy Spirit and then marking themselves with Holy Spirit language. And they're always 
his work or the work rather that they promote and supposedly the name of the Holy Spirit is always marked with chaotic nonsense. So holy laughter, being slain in the spirit, running fits where you just take off running, babbling gibberish and calling it a language, trance-like states where you're just kind of comatose on the floor, rolling gently side to side, barking like a dog on and on and on to these chaotic things go, all of which have no grounding in scripture whatsoever. There's never an emphasis in those circles on discipline, diligence, perseverance, patience, none of that. It's all immediate. The, the framework for this is, is always marked by ecstatic, extemporaneous, erratic, and immediate. Always those things, certainly shrouded in just emotions poured on emotions. Despite texts like 1 Corinthians 14.33 that say, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. So you can read, God is not a God of disorder, but of order. And then the last gift of the Holy Spirit is what? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is self-control. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is self-control, not chaos. Now, in our circles, in the reformed world, there can be a overcorrection, an effort to distance ourselves from that kind of insanity, we disregard the Holy Spirit entirely, or at least can be tempted to. And this is a grave error, perhaps even blasphemy to do so, because our very confession in paragraph two, chapter, or chapter two, paragraph three, says the third member of the, of the Trinity, the Spirit, is of one substance, power, and eternity, having the whole divine essence, just as the Father and as the Son do. And it was not in keeping with our tradition of those who believe in biblical inerrancy, the Bible above all, the ordinary means of grace, the regulative principle, Reformed theology, all of that has no history in ignoring the Holy Spirit. The Puritans, the, the father, not the father of the Puritans, but the most uh, prolific writer of the Puritans, John Owen, he, is, he wrote a 650-page book on the Holy Spirit, 650, and this is in the 1600s. John Calvin is, is known throughout those who have actually read his works. People who hate him have never read him, but if you've actually read him, he's called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And this is what B.B. Warfield, who said, B.B. Warfield was a theologian in Princeton. He died in the 1920s. And you know he's real because he goes by his first two initials, B.B. You're nobody if you go by your first name. C.S. Lewis, R.C. Sproul, F.F. Bruce. And I can't ever do that. That's why you know I'm never going to have to go anywhere because I would have to be S.S. Sanders and they would think that's just a decommissioned aircraft carrier. (laughs) So I'll never be famous as a theologian. But B.B. Warfield was, and he said this about uh, getting to Calvin. He said, we got our doctrine of sin and grace from Augustine, meaning codified, it's in the scriptures, but like made clear to us. Doctrine of justification from Luther, And they said, we must say that the doctrine of the work of the Holy Spirit is a gift from Calvin to the church. So therefore, as good Calvinists, we must be people who embrace, who know, and who walk and are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to be. Being spirit-filled, as we'll see, takes effort and is obvious. It won't happen passively, like getting struck by lightning, and it won't happen invisibly. We'll all be able to tell. To be filled with the Spirit is to be actively engaged in sanctification. 
So here's how our text is going to roll out today. What happens in verse 18 is the command comes, be filled with the Spirit. Then verses 19, 20, and 21 is just exhibit A, exhibit B, and exhibit C of being filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with the Spirit, you will have the marks that are in verse 19, 20, and 21. So let's look at the verse 18, the the command that comes. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the first half of this verse we got to deal with just as it is on its face. The text isn't primarily about alcohol consumption. Nevertheless, it does say, do not get drunk with wine. That's a clear command. Being drunk is a sin, full stop. Why? Because Christianity is a faith of the mind. It's not primarily because God doesn't want you to feel better. He's put herbs out there that you rub on cuts that make you feel better. Aloe exists. Food, a good meal satisfies. It's not about that. It's about the loss of the control of your mind. That's what drunkenness does. See, Christ's lordship demands authority over all of you and intoxication removes some of that authority over part of you at the very least. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and what? All your mind. If you are drunk, your mind is not functioning in any way in accordance with the scriptures. So now your mind and your affections under intoxication will be governed by something else. And you are too too mentally impaired to obey Christ. In the moment of intoxication, you're controlled by another. So let's look at practical applications before we just get past this. Here's the question you got to ask. Is buzzed, is tipsy, is loosened up, is that drunk? If you're going to drink, you're going to have to answer that. Because at some level, you're altering your mind to do, do something that you wouldn't normally do. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do? I wouldn't normally go deep into the jungle to share the gospel with people who want to kill me with spears, but because of the Holy Spirit, now I do want to do that. So at any level, is that the case? Is, is buzzed, is tipsy, is drunk? We're going to have to define that. Intoxication can lead to more sin, and often, more often than not, it does. Look at Proverbs 23. 31 and following, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or one or like one who lies down on the top of a mast saying, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. And you can say, and it has been said, well, it's just a sin like any other. And like, yes, that may be true, but nobody's ever gotten behind the wheel of a pickup truck and smashed and killed a family of four in a minivan because they had too many donuts. It modifies your mind. And to say, we believe the evangelical lie that God just looks at all sins the same, that's just not true. There are sins more heinous than others. Not everything in the old covenant got the death penalty. There were some sins that were more heinous than others. All of them are worthy of condemnation, but some are worse. And we know that because we can't think that our, our fallen, broken civil justice system that has a rank, that doesn't give every sin, the death, every crime, the death penalty is somehow more advanced than God is. Of course not. So 
Now that everybody is sufficiently triggered, Paul has a higher purpose for speaking on this, and we're going to move on past it. You can email me later. (laughs) Paul has a higher purpose. His point is not here to talk about the effects of alcohol. There are other places in scriptures to look at that. What he's after, what he means to do is draw a correlation to the controlling reality of drunkenness under the influence of alcohol to the controlling mental capacity of the spirit of God over Christians. He's using it primarily as an illustration because that verse says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but meaning instead be filled with the spirit. Now we got to answer the obvious questions first. What we got to do when we work through a text like this, if we're going to have this be the command that then exhibits the evidence of it in verses 19, 20, 21, we got to understand what we're talking about. Being filled with the spirit. You should ask the question, aren't all Christians always filled with the Holy Spirit? Because Paul insists, the Ephesian church, you have to be, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Aren't we all always filled with the Holy Spirit? You can't be saved without the Holy Spirit, right? Titus 3, 5, he saved us, how? Not by any deeds that we've done on our own, a base of deeds we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. So you're not saved unless you have the Holy Spirit. And all Christians, all true Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 3, 16, right? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? So that's true for all true Christians. So what this can't mean is that a Christian can have the spirit within him or her at a moment and then not have him at another moment. That the Spirit can jump in and out. That's not what we're talking about at all. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. And if you lost this Holy Spirit, then you lost your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. We know we can't lose salvation. And those who have the Holy Spirit cannot lose him. Now, if you know your Old Testament, then you're thinking about two guys that it seems like they did, Samson and Saul. So what do we do with that? Judges 16, 20, and she, Delilah, said to Samson, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And then 1 Samuel 16, 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now, what are we talking about here? Because if we can't lose the spirit, it looks like these two guys did. Now, what's happening in the lives of Samson and the lives of Saul? They're national leaders under the old covenant. And this Holy Spirit is not, uh, this, this outpouring, this, this um, putting upon of the Holy Spirit is not the same as what we're talking about, like we just mentioned in Titus 3.5. This is what would be called a special anointing to do a task or a special empowerment for a certain role. Because we know that Samson is in heaven, so he didn't lose the Holy Spirit and then... Now he's not saved because Hebrews eleven thirty two and 33 say, what more shall I say from time, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So Samson mentioned there being as truly saved. However, Saul is not. Saul is never affirmed as redeemed. So Saul... We can see there that those two, those two people are not exactly the same. So the discrepancy cannot be then that they lost their salvation or you can lose the Holy Spirit in a saving way. 
It's a a special anointing empowerment for national leadership under the old covenant. Because David prays about the same thing. Psalm 51, 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David's not saying I've sinned so bad. That's how this verse gets weaponized and rank Arminian cultures is that you can lose it. See, David said right there, he sinned so bad, God's threatening to take his Holy Spirit from him. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the leadership role over the kingdom under the old covenant, don't remove that a special anointing to lead and to be the warrior king that we need. That's what he's praying about. Because Jesus affirms the spirit's permanence in all believers. John 14, 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper, meaning the spirit, and he may be with you for how long? Forever. And then we already saw this in chapter one of Ephesians, did we not? Verse 13. What is the Holy Spirit? In him also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If he's sealed you, then it can't be broken. You can't lose that. Otherwise, that means God changed his mind. And God does not change his mind. He is immutable. He never changes. So the Spirit is permanent in believers. So now that we've gotten through all the possible non-answers, then what does it mean? to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Context is the key, because what does it compare it to? Drunkenness and wine. To be filled with wine to the level of intoxication is to be controlled by it. Consuming alcohol to the extent that it bends your mind to its will. If you get pulled over and you get a DUI, what does DUI stand for? Driving under the influence. This call that Paul is laying out is living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's after. This is how Christians are to be filled. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. This is just sanctification. This is engaging in your pursuit of Christ-likeness, in your pursuit of holiness, to the level that what's controlling you, what's dictating your decision-making, the ways that you think, the ways that you process, the grid, the metric that you sift data through is that of the Holy Spirit. And so then how do we then, if the illustration then is alcohol that we put into us, how then is the Spirit to be consumed by it? How do we intake the Holy Spirit. Well, let's ask a different question to get there. What did the Holy Spirit do and inspire? What did he, as the scriptures say, theonoustos? Theo is Greek for God, and noustos is from the word pneuma, which means spirit or breath or wind. Breathed out by God is the scriptures. The author of the scriptures is the Spirit. He uses 40 different 40 plus different human pens, but he is the author of it. They may scratch the ink onto the paper, but he is the author of it. The very word of God to be filled with the spirit is to have a mind controlled by the Bible. That's what it is to be filled with the spirit. And alcoholic intoxication alters your decision-making. So does Bible saturation. It alters your decision-making. It alters the way that you mentally process things according to the spirit who inspired it. 
the Spirit who brought it about. Because how did we get the Bible? Second Peter 1, verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how we got the Bible. So this is how we are filled with the Spirit. There's not some extra hokey way. You cannot be filled with the Spirit without being filled with the Scripture. And there is no shortcut. Everybody's looking for a shortcut to being filled with the Spirit. There isn't one. There's nothing but time spent. We always talk about quality time, but time is in of itself a quantity. So quality time, meaning like, yeah, I don't really spend that much time in the Bible, but I mean, once a year I get up on the mountains out in the Rockies and I sit there and, and I read uh, my utmost for his highest or in his steps or something. And that's just fills me up. No, it's quantity. That's how you get in front of it. How do you get controlled by alcohol? Quantity goes into you. It's got to be Quantity. And see, here's the thing, all the, the, the spirit, uh, Holy Spirit distorters, the hucksters, the charlatans, what are they all offering? Here's a shortcut, shortcut to holiness. All you got to do is come to my meeting. I'm going to hit you on the forehead and then that's going to make you feel amazing and all these crazy things. But what they never tell you is, is when you wake up the next morning, you're just as ignorant and uninformed and ungodly as you were the day before. You're no less in control and dominating your sin and purging it from your life. You know no more of Christ. You've seen no more of the glory of God and you're no more transformed. You just had an emotional experience that you can also have if your favorite team wins at the end of the game by a Hail Mary. To pardon the Catholic pun. So here's what we got to do. We got to, before we move on to the exhibits and proving what it is to walk in the spirit, because we're at this text, we got to just pause to inform, or inform rather, you of these aberrant doctrines that come from this text that are brought from it and then distorted from it. Here's, the, here's one. It's, it goes by two different names. It's either the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they'll look at this text and say, see, this is what you got to have. You got to have a second blessing, which means being baptized in the Holy Spirit. You got to have something extra happen to you. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that you repented of your sins and you trusted in Christ and, and you, you abandoned all hope and anything else and your hope is in Christ alone, by faith alone and grace alone, but you need a second thing to happen. That's where they're going to get this from. And what it does is it fundamentally eviscerates sola fide, faith alone, because it's not faith alone. Faith alone gets you started, but you need a second work to come along. And it's marked by whatever they want to say, whether it's slain in the spirit or holy laughter or being drunk in the spirit or, or uh, speaking in tongues or whatever it is. That's how we know that you're really saved. Your repentance and faith was just, that's all right, but that's not enough. You need a second work. It comes from poor old John Wesley, who started the Methodist church back in the 1700s. And then it gets crazy distorted by the 1900s. What it does is it makes justification two-stage. means, yeah, you're kind of saved when you repented and believed, but you need to get all the way there. So they needed a second thing to have happen to you. That's like saying, you're halfway born again. I don't know any moms that have delivered babies. Had any of those babies, did you ever say, ah, he's halfway born. I'm I'm not good for this. This is fine for now. Hopefully he'll get all the way born later on. No, it's an all or nothing deal, Right? You're either all the way out or you're all the way in. 
That's, that's how it is. And Jesus uses, that's the way, the reason why Jesus uses that illustration in John 3 of being born again so that you cannot mistake it. And what it does also, and this is the probably the more personally destructive thing is that it creates a two-tier ranking in the church. Is you have the truly spiritual, they have been received the second blessing or they have been baptized in the spirit and you other plebeians are just waiting for it to happen. Maybe you'll get there one, one day. Hey, we're all going to get the championship letter jacket. Just some of us are varsity and some of us are JV. That's what it does in the church. And the second thing, these, an aberration of this verse we have to know, this is the worst of them all, is called being drunk on the spirit. Because they're going to take it literally and say, don't drink drunk with wine, but be filled. That means be drunk. That, no, it's two different words. But this being drunk on the spirit, if, I would encourage you not to Google it. I did. And I'd seen it before, but man, it'll just, it'll just depress you. Because they're acting like they're drunk on alcohol, but then saying it's the Holy Spirit. It's almost like it's a character of itself, that they're stumbling around and slurring their words and giggling at nonsense and saying that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't take a drop of alcohol, but I'm so drunk on the Holy Spirit. And then under the influence of the Spirit, they just lose control. So they can't sit down. They can't. Uh, the, the keyboardist can't play because he just starts laughing and then gets up and starts running and all of this. This is chaos. It's chaos being drunk on the spirit. But under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose control of our lives. We gain control because before you're born again, you are out of control, neck deep in all sin that is, is appealing to you. But under the Holy Spirit, you gain control over that. That's what the last fruit of the Spirit is, is self-control. And if that had a catchier phrase, we'd have a lot of daughters named self-control. We've got plenty of, plenty of joys and plenty of faiths out there. We need some self-controls. Those who haven't had daughter babies yet, think about it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get into the next th the three exhibits because there's three prominent manifestations, according to the Apostle Paul, of being spirit-filled. How does it look like? So if you were in court and you had a prosecuting attorney saying, this person is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, these are the three exhibits, A, B, and C, that he would bring to convict you of being filled with the Spirit. And if a church is accused of being spirit-filled, these are the same three exhibits that must be present in order to be accused or to be rightfully convicted of being spirit-filled. So it's not ecstatic, impromptu chaos. It's these true biblical distinctives that we can all see and we can all measure. So exhibit A, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So let's take that first piece, speaking to one another. Now, there's a, there's a parallel verse in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So there's this aspect that a, that a spirit-filled believer and thus a spirit-filled church is going to be filled with the scriptures and speaking that to each other. And then Colossians 3.16 would say, even teaching and admonishing each other 
because the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Now that is what we're after. See, you guys, here's, I'll give you a, a look behind the glass. Anybody can buy just a whole bunch of books. And you guys think I'm smart because I've bought a whole lot of books. But I really just read about two guys, Charles Spurgeon and John Bunyan. Anybody can buy a bunch of books and, and prove and make it look like they're really smart. But I, my major, I barely had a 3.0 in a major that was filled with sorority girls and the walk-on athletes. That's what, and I took, here, I took a class called Leisure 101. I barely got a B in it. And then I wrote a paper on Batman my senior year. I got a great B in that. So let's just take it all down a notch. Spurgeon and Bunyan, to me, are so relatable. Spurgeon's in the 1800s, Bunyan's in the 1600s. Neither one of them had high educations. Bunyan was just a guy who fixed pots. And, and, and Spurgeon never went past like the, uh, like the, the, the 12th. No, he didn't even go past like the 10th grade. But these men, they're just soaked in Bible. That's why I like to read those guys because all they do is speak in Bible. Whenever I read a Spurgeon sermon, he'll have a text and it'll be just one verse or a piece of a verse. And then I read throughout it and I just mark in the margins every single time that he quotes another scripture. And the average that I'm at about right now is like 23 to 24 other scriptures that he doesn't even cite. He just speaks it. Like it's just coming out in normal language. Same for his daily devotions. And then Bunyan, when he writes Pilgrim's Progress, I've been currently making my own scripture index to it to find where all the scripture references are. He has something in there that he puts, but then other ones that it's just characters talking to themselves and he just uses some obscure quote from Obadiah or something from just the buried deep in Isaiah. And it's not even making a, like a really big theological point. It's just dialogue between the characters. And that's why Spurgeon said of Bunyan, he said, he said, the man is a walking Bible. He's like, prick him anywhere, meaning poke him anywhere on the skin and his blood will flow bibline. You poke that guy anywhere, all that's gonna come out of him is Bible. And that's what Paul's exhorting us to be. What fills you is what comes out of you. And nothing can come out that's not already in. So if we're gonna obey this command, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and, and the way that the cross-reference Galatians 3.16 says, have the word of Christ dwell in us so richly that we can teach and admonish each other. We have to have that word in us. That has to be our common vernacular. This, this has to become our lexicon, our dictionary, our glossary of how we talk, how we, let alone how we live. But, but our, our language is just... It's just Bible. That's what he's after. If you're filled with the Spirit, then his word's what's going to come out. Now, this is also in the context of what it says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is also in the context, we know the book of Ephesians about the church. So psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, those are three words that are somewhat overlapping, but a little bit distinct. So psalms would be primarily Old Testament from the Psalter, so the 150 Psalms. Hymns would be New Testament songs of praise. And spiritual songs would be things that are written later and may not even be directly about uh, or speaking directly to the praise of God or Christ, but are just spiritual, biblical in nature. 
So what we're supposed to have here is, in ver- as verse 20 says, speaking to one another in those songs. So as we sing, we're speaking to each other. This is the verse that we look at, along with the Colossians cross-reference, to singing and how we worship. There's not a single instrument listed there. No guitar, no drums, no percussion, no nothing. What is the primary function of the corporate worship when it comes to singing is voices. Voices. So whatever the music may be, all it needs to do is supplement voices. And because all of us aren't gifted musically, it needs to guide us as we use our voices. That's our primary reality. The instruments are only meant to help us sing because we're singing for and to each other. We're also singing for and to the Lord. We'll get to that in a minute, but for and to each other because we're speaking to one another, it says. So we can't fulfill this if we can't hear each other. I mean, part of the the worship wars of the 80s and 90s was just nonsensical marketing, and they should have just owned it. Because when you crank the music up, you turn all the lights off, and you turn all the lights on the stage on, then what you're telling everybody is, this is not something that you do. This is something that you come and watch. So who cares if you even open your mouth or do anything? But we're supposed to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. If I can't hear you and you can't hear me, we're not obeying this. If I'm not singing and you're not singing, then we're not obeying this. So this is where, and I've heard people say like, oh, I hate it when the music is quiet because then I can hear myself. Friends, brothers and sisters, get over it. We got to hear you. We have to hear you. At a previous church, when I was preaching there, there would always be, uh, or on and off, there would be a family that would come and sit right behind me. So on the second row, and their kids were a a teenage boy and then a a young adult, uh, young lady who were mentally handicapped, who, who had learning disabilities in so many different ways. And so their singing was, it was off key and it was often behind. Like as they're reading the song, they're, they're, they're slower and they're behind, but their hearts were just full volume. I was always so blessed. And it would always be when I'm dragging in and I feel like garbage and I feel like a sinner and I'm pathetic and what am I gonna do when I get up there? And then that little boy and then that young lady singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to my soul was a blessing and I needed it. And we've all experienced something like that. When you just can hear somebody across the room and you just, man, I know what they're going through and look at them. Or maybe you're, you're too weak and you're fumbling trying to sing and somebody else is singing loud next to you, bearing up your burdens, singing those loud truths when you can barely get them out of your mouth. That's what we do when we sing. And we also sing for and to the Lord. It's akin to an Old Testament offering. So instead of bringing a goat or a sheep or a pigeon or whatever it may be, we bring voices. We bring voices that are, that are connected to hearts because John 4, 24 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, meaning not the Holy Spirit, but our spirit. We worship down here and that's what we give to him. I owe God worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I, will, I would never get up in front of the congregation and say, thank you so much for joining us. And somebody asked him why, and he said, because they owe worship to God. You don't thank somebody for giving somebody else what they owe. 
We owe this like a, like a sacrifice is owed in the old covenant. Hearts that are full of joyful singing, those are owed to God in the new covenant. And it's supposed to be like this, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Making melody is the word salo. It's literally to pluck a stringed instrument. That's what that word means. So the Christian worldview has always prized the good, the true, and the beautiful. But sadly, in evangelicalism, we quit caring about the beautiful and we started caring more about the functional. How do we just make it work? And, and then also, and then you match that with the reformed world, then if it has any kind of flair or excellence, then it's obviously unholy. So your sermon's better if it's more boring. And your music's better if it's more dull. That's not what it's talking about. It says making melody. So that has an, an essence of beauty. Now, if we can also worship beauty in a wrong way, which is where the mainline tradition went, right? With the big buildings, they're beautiful and all that. But then that's all they care about. They turn them into museums. You can worship beauty in the wrong way, but you can ignore beauty in the wrong way. We're not called to do that. We need to worship in our hearts because God has always been after hearts. The last of that verse says, not empty actions. Anyone can engage in behavior modification. There are pagans who wake up early and go on jogs and eat healthy food and pay their taxes on time and in full. It doesn't matter. Anybody can change their behavior. God's after hearts and only the Holy Spirit can change hearts. Therefore, we worship him from our truly changed hearts and we can now obey the command of Deuteronomy 10, 16, which says, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So that's exhibit A. Exhibit B, verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Always giving thanks. So we just finished Thanksgiving, but we're commanded here to be in a perpetual state of Thanksgiving. First Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, not just the last Thursday of November, but always give thanks. And all things means all things. See, this is where being filled with the Spirit diverges the hardest from the mainstream of those who would dis distort being filled with the Spirit. Because this means you're going to have to thank God for difficulties and trials and prosperity theology, often connected to those who distort the Holy Spirit, can't do that. Their theology won't allow for it. A faith healer theology won't allow you to do that. They, they, they have no context for how to deal with Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, says Job, meaning though God crush me, I will hope in him. And if you've never heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, you need to go look her up. She got paralyzed at age 17 and she's still alive and um, has a ministry and she reads books by having a stick in her mouth and sliding the pages. She makes art and she, she speaks at all these things. And she said this, she said, I thank God every day for my wheelchair. I mean, I mean this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road. I'm being spirit-filled because all things mean all things. It doesn't mean we pretend that evil things are good. That's, that's sinful. That's the, antith that's the antithesis of what God is after here. But it does mean we thank God for what he will do with what's evil in our lives. Because no matter how bad or how painful life is, hell is infinitely worse and you're not there. I mean, this, this is, whatever is hell is not grace, we know that. But the mere fact that Job 38, 39, 40, and 41 exist in our Bibles should cause us to tremble in our boots. 
Because after Job goes through all of that misery of all of his wealth being gone, his kids dying, his wife turning on him, his friends turning on him and berating him for a dozen and two dozen chapters, then God comes in and goes, Job, man, I'm so sorry. You've had such a hard way. He says, Job, pull up your pants and then you tell me how it is. You'll instruct me because obviously you know better than I do. And he does that for four chapters. And then he never tells Job why all of that stuff happened to him. I mean, that book alone knocks out half of the nonsense that we see in the church today. And Job is able to give thanks because he says, naked I came from mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's not saying, I'm so glad that my kids are dead. He's saying, we owe praise to God no matter what. Shall we not thank God for, for only when, when, shall we only thank God when good comes from his hand, he says to his wife, and not when evil comes? See, being filled with the Spirit means thanking God for his work in us through trials that he either brings or allows. But he has not left us without a mediator because how do we give thanks? It's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we can always know is, no, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're suffering, it's nothing compared to what Christ did. It's nothing. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you as God's promise to us. We'll never have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like the Lord Jesus did. And yet now he then, that very one serves as our mediator. Hebrews 7.25, therefore Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. One, one pastor said that every time you hear the clock tick, that second hand, it goes, tick, 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 tick. that's just here, Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus is praying for me. Jesus, because he always lives to make intercession for us. That's why we pray in his name. He told us to pray in his name. But then theologically, this is why we pray in his name, because he's praying far greater and for more than we are. We're only acceptable before the throne because of him, And yet then he prays for us and then the spirit prays for us. So being filled with the spirit who himself is praying for us. Romans 8, 26 and 27. In the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should. Have you ever been there? I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to pray for. The Bible says, I know, you don't. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You don't even know how to pray. You can't even see up or down. You have no idea what the will of God would be for you in this situation, but the spirit does. And he is praying for you. He's praying for you on a level that you can't even interpret when all you can do is groan. So we're thankful always because we have that help to be so. And then lastly, exhibit C, verse 21 and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. This is the very mind of Christ. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Jesus' mindset. 
this is what being filled with the Spirit means. You can't be convicted of being filled with the Spirit if you don't think of others as more important than yourself because that was the very mind of Christ. Being more concerned for them than you are for you because Mark 10, 45 says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we do. Being filled with the Spirit is not about gaining for yourself. And that's what every single charlatan, spirit, Holy Spirit distorter is after. You gaining for yourself. You need a new car. You need to lose 30 pounds. You need to kick that nagging cough. And you can get there if you'll just buy my prayer hanky because I doused it with Holy Spirit mojo. It's all for you. All for you. You are getting what you want by going to him because he seems to know how to get you what you want. But being filled with the spirit, is you don't care about yourself at all. You're subject to one another. And, and for one reason only is because you fear Christ. I fear Christ, reverential awe over squishy sentimentality. Fear Christ, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion says the preacher when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. When our son was born, Anna always likes to do like a decoration for each of the kids and wanted a verse for it. And she's like, what, do you, what verse do you want for, for him? And I couldn't get past Ecclesiastes 12, 13 because that verse, it just cuts through all the nonsense and gets right down to brass tacks. It's at the end of the book. It's the second to last verse in the book of Ecclesiastes where the the writer has gone through everything. He's looked here for wisdom. He's looked there for happiness. He's climbed up there to see if there's meaning. And there's nothing anywhere except this, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the gospel. The gospel is you are God and I am not. I submit to you by whatever means you lay out. And those means are trust in Christ and keep his commandments. Follow him. Just cut through all the nonsense right down to it. Because we fear Christ, therefore we love and serve others. Because I don't fear you. I'm not trying to please anybody, Paul says. If I was trying to still please people, then I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. But because I'm a servant of Christ, I can actually benefit you. I can actually love you. I can actually provide what it is that you need most because I fear Christ more than I fear you or anybody else, any persecuting authority. So those are the three exhibits. Exhibit A, B, and C. If you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you better be filled with the words, be able to speak it, sing it, You better be giving thanks in all things. And then lastly, being subject to one another, viewing others as more important than ourselves. Seeing being filled with the Spirit is an active process. It's not a passive process. There's not a place that you go and that's how you can get Spirit-filled. It's not like your car gas tank. I need to fill it up with gas, so I go to the gas tank and the gas station and that fills it up. No, no. This is an active process. It's a day-in and day-out process. And that drum, we have to beat all day long, (laughs) 24-7, because nobody really believes that. They they look at people, men or women, who are like, wow, you're so spiritually mature. You're so so faithful, and you're walking with the Lord, and and these things don't get you down. Like, you're you're not crushed by that. You have a verse for me when I need that. How'd you get there? And when they tell you, every day I'm in the Word, and I make it a point to constantly be involved in my local church, we go, yeah, 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 there's gotta be something else, though. 
There's got to be a 12-step process. What the phone app do I need to get to download? And then I'll get there. I want to be like you. And there's got to be a faster way to get there. There's not. It's the day in, day out. And if you are struggling with that and you don't know how how do I read my Bible? I'm just so intimidated. That's like me in the weight room. I go in there and I go, I know this is how you get strong. But what do I do? Just start picking stuff up? And just, that'll get me strong. Somebody show me what to do. If that's you, then ask an older believer in the church, show me what to do. Email me. I'll send, I can send you a handful of Bible reading plans. This is how we grow. You don't sit around and wait. You engage meaningfully in sanctification because that verb is be filled you do it, not sit around and wait for it to happen to you. You be filled. So we do that. And you can do that. This command is not something that's just for the super spiritual. You can. You can do it. I mean, this is the, this is the, the, the overwhelming uh, blessing of it all is that you can. If you can read a language that's known, there's a Bible in that language for you, and you can read it because chapter one of Ephesians is also in this book. It was, God, he will enlighten your eyes to understand the word. And you're not alone. You have a church. So you can come and say, man, I just, uh, friend, I was reading this. What does that mean that looks like this? Then y'all sit down and you talk about it. You have a pastor. You have elders. What do we do? This, it looks like it says this. What does that mean? We talk about it which is why we preach expositionally through the text. So we hit topics all the time. Instead of just getting on a hobby horse that I'm really good at talking about and I can repackage six or seven times, we're gonna have to go through the hard things, which is coming up next week, by the way. Stick around. And then lastly, don't ever forget that we are sanctified by grace. Sola gratia is not just for your conversion, your justification, it is also for your sanctification. We're not saved by grace and sanctified by works. Now, we, we will be sweaty, bloody, and soaked in tears in the process of sanctification, but we will not get closer to Christ and go, man, sure I'm glad I buckled down and made it happen. It will be all of God. So don't think that, oh, this is so intimidating of a thing, like we're all starting out with the same amount of money and it's up to us to invest it and they're better investing and so they're gonna get a better return and I'm never gonna have anything. No, we're, we're starting out of the same place with the Holy Spirit and we're continued on with the same Holy Spirit and we have the same God who elected us before the foundation of the world and, verse, and Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will see it all the way through to the end. He will do that. So you engage in your sanctification with hope and with confidence that that's his will for me and God gets what he wants. So I engage and God graciously causes the growth so that we don't have a church of JV and varsity. We have a church of sheep and one heavenly shepherd. He knows all of our names and he brings all of us home. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we take a text like this and we thank you for it. We thank you for the simplicity and the plainness of it, the obviousness of it. Lord, we thank you for the intricacies of it. We thank you that you've given us a way, the way that you've deemed best to worship you is so simple. It's voices and the Bible. And that's all we need. And we get a, a jug of fruit of the vine and some water to get people wet and baptize them. 
you haven't made it complicated. Lord, we look at the old covenant and we see the, the intricacies. We can barely follow the details sometimes. And you did that to show us the burden and the weight of not having a true mediator, a permanent, perfect mediator. Moses was never gonna be enough. But then you gave us Christ, the final mediator, the perfect mediator. And the covenant that he mediates between us and you is better. Hebrews 9 says is better than the old one. It's enacted on better promises. We thank you so much that what you're after is worship that's in spirit and truth, that it's not so fastidious and so tedious that you have paid it through Christ. And we ask your forgiveness, Lord, because so often we are so casual and nonchalant and even indifferent in our prayers, in our worship, in our reading, in our dealing with sin, because you have made it so plain and you've made it so simple that we become lackadaisical and we become entitled. Father, please forgive us of that. Please let our, our gatherings every Lord's Day do what Hebrews 10 says that they're supposed to do, which is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Help us to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not in a way that we're evaluating each other, Lord. We're so, you know our hearts, you know that we're so prone to just compare ourselves and, and make ourselves look or feel better than somebody else. Lord, show us and teach us how to stir one another up towards faithfulness and Christ-likeness without being belittling, but with being truly concerned and loving for our brothers and sisters, that we would speak to each other in the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we would serve one another in all the ways that you've laid out for us, and that we would give thanks, Lord, even in the difficulties, where we know that we are often not a people marked by thanks and most of our prayers are coming and asking you for things that we don't have instead of thanking you for all that we do have. And even if we were absolutely destitute, just scrounging for a breadcrumb on a dusty street in some third world country, and if we had Christ, we would still have everything in the world to thank you for. So Father, forgive us for our ingratitude. May we never be like the nation Israel that forgot to give you thanks. May we be a people who are always on our knees thanking you for Christ above all and then all that we have. And Lord, we have so much. We know that there are brothers and sisters in churches around right now who are leaving church and walking miles to get clean water. And, and we're gonna go home tonight and let gallons of drinkable water go down the shower drain because it's not the temperature we like. Please make us a people that are thankful. Please let that never leave us. Lord, enrich our fellowship for the good of our hearts and for the endurance of our feet and also for your glory. Glorify yourself here, Father, because that is all that we're after. We have one goal, that you would be glorified and we would enjoy you forever. And we ask this humbly in Christ's name, amen.